History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge, find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. Hello, my name is Ryan Weir and I'm here in the HHE studio with the attitude to my longitude. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. I'm just happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Peter, last week the Dursalator gave you Between a Rock and a Hard Place in the Tropic of Cancer during 800 to 900 CE. So I'm kind of stumped as to what you're going to be talking about. So why don't you go ahead and give us a little clue as to what's coming up on today's episode. Have a little taste of this. We are going all around the world on a tour of one of the five main lines of latitude. We're going to a line that traverses 16 countries across three continents. We'll learn why there's twice as much longitude as latitude. We'll learn about rocks of great value in the empire they helped to build. We'll saddle up with ancient travellers and we'll meet a man whose rebellion sent a ripple around the ancient world. Welcome to 23 and a half degrees north. Welcome to the wobbly limit of the direct sun and welcome to the Tropic of Cancer. Now, Peter, I'm very excited about this week's episode, and the reason for that is because my star sign is Cancer. Ooh! So I feel like if any episode is going to suit me, it's going to be that. That's why you said you had crabs. <laughs> yeah, that was between us. But... <laughs> But thanks for sharing. Hey, look, why don't you get us started and tell us what you actually mean by the Tropic of Cancer? Good question, Ryan. So the Tropic of Cancer is also known as the Northern Tropic. And this is an imaginary line running all the way around the Earth at just over 23 degrees north of the equator. So... That's a horizontal line on the maps as we generally see them. And uh, it's a little bit north of the equator, which is about the height of the Sahara Desert. It's a line that goes through that all the way around the Earth, or roughly Mexico on the other side. It's a line that bands the Earth. Like the equator, but just smaller and higher up a bit. Smaller and higher up than the equator, exactly so. So if you look at a globe, you might notice it's separated into a grid. There's lines of latitude, which are going horizontally in inverted commas, and lines of longitude, which are north-south or up and down, if you prefer. I do. And you use this for what? Like for mapping journeys and stuff? So longitude will tell you time zones and, yes, telling you where you are on the globe. And latitude will do similarly, but it will tell you where you are horizontally on the globe. But also the lines of latitude are useful because they tell us something about the angle of the Earth to the sun. So what that means is as the Earth goes around the sun, Mm -hmm. at different times, the angle of the sun to the Earth changes. Right. But what that means is the reasons the tropics are important is the Tropic of Cancer is one of these five main lines of latitude and it is the most northerly circle of latitude on Earth at which the sun can be directly overhead. Oh, okay. Even at midday, the sun is not directly overhead. It's actually slightly further down the sky, I guess you could say. You go to the Tropic of Cancer, it's going to be right above your head. But only once a year at the Tropic of Cancer. So if you go one step north of the Tropic of Cancer, the sun will never be directly overhead. And then as you go towards the equator, the sun will be overhead more often. Very cool. Does that mean I get no shadow if the sun's directly overhead? I suppose so, yeah. Yeah. So this happens on the June solstice, which is around June the 21st. And that's when the Northern Hemisphere is tilted towards the sun to its maximum extent. And it's called the Tropic of Cancer because in astrological terms, on the day this happens, the sun is in the constellation of Cancer, hence the name. Okay, that's cool. Now, to make this even more confusing, the Earth's tilt 
There's actually a little wobble in it as well. So over about a 41,000 year period, the tilt goes from 22.1 to 24.5 degrees. This wobble means the Tropic of Cancer actually moves over time. And it's currently drifting south about a half a second of latitude, or about 15 meters, 49 feet per year. 49 feet's quite a lot. It is surprisingly uh, a lot. Some people mark the Tropic of Cancer on the roadways and things, and they've got different signposts for different years of where the tropic was at that time. Oh, that's kind of cool. I like that. I mean, you mentioned a couple of countries there. You said that uh, the Sahara and you said Mexico. But given that it goes all the way around the world, I'm wondering what other countries it might include. Well, I'm glad you asked that because there are 16 countries, depending on one's definition of country. But the following countries are on the Tropic of Cancer. I'm going to start from the west coast of Africa and head east. Okay. Western Sahara, Mauritania, Mali, Algeria, Niger, Libya, Egypt... Saudi Arabia, UAE, Oman, India, Bangladesh, Myanmar, China, Taiwan, Mexico, and the Bahamas. Those are some hot places. That is a theme that emerges is hot is definitely one of the things that happens because, Mm. of course, you've got the sun directly overhead. Not all the time, but uh, you get more sun for your money, which we will talk about in a minute. Okay. Now, you're wondering how big it is, I'm sure. I don't even know how you would estimate it, but yeah, tell me. It is a tricky question, isn't it? So I can tell you how long it is. That'd be good. 36,768 kilometres, 22,847 miles long. So we've got a length. That's good. Yeah. So then I thought, well, how wide is the Tropic of Cancer? So I looked at the Pacific Islands Ocean Observing System website and they said the north bounding coordinate is 23.43954 degrees and the Mm. south bounding coordinate is 23.43934 degrees but rather than do really complex math what i said was i'd give the latitude line a width of one second of latitude so yeah latitude is divided into degrees in minutes and seconds So one second of latitude is about 100 feet or about 30 metres. Right, okay, yeah. So that gives us an area of approximately 440 square miles, 1,140 square kilometres, making it 484 tropics of cancer to a France. Okay, run that through with me again. I gave it a one second width. Just the whole thing. So 100 feet all the way around the world. Yeah. Just land, not sea. No, that's land and sea. Oh, land and sea. Yeah, we'd include lakes and things if we did a country. So I figured the water is part of it. So how many Frances, sorry? 484 tropics of cancer to a France. Oh. So it's quite small, even though it goes all the way around the world. That's really small. But you've only got 100 feet around, haven't you? Yeah, I suppose so. That's surprising. I thought there was going to be many Frances to a Tropic of Cancer. Yeah, I, was, I thought that too. But I guess if you pick your narrow your area narrow enough, you don't get much land. Huh, there you go. Now, population, another tricky one, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Uh, but if you take the population of all the countries on the Tropic of Cancer, you get 3,438,181,021. So a few. A few. That's 43% of the world's population. But you should probably know that china and india are doing a lot of the heavy lifting there and they're about 80 (laughs) percent of that number was just china and india but what about within that little hundred feet band yeah i could not work that out i have to be honest but given that there is the sahara desert and an awful lot of ocean i suspect it's not that many yeah i guess not now you're probably wondering about the national anthem i certainly am how on earth are you going to do that well i'll just say listen to this Oh, this is jarring. <laughs> this must have taken you a while. <laughs> Ooh, that's nice. Uh, this is my favourite yeah. part. 
I feel like I'm scanning through a radio. That was very much the experience of 16 national anthems all in random order, one after another, <laughs> randomly blended into each other. <laughs> I love it. There you go. That is the national anthem of the Tropic of Cancer. Now, flag-wise, also it won't surprise you to learn it doesn't have a flag, but I did find a contender. I found a blog called The Voice of Vexillology, Flags and Heraldry, and it was just one page on this blog. It had no provenance at all as to where this flag came from. I assume the person who made the blog just made it for a laugh because I couldn't find it anywhere else or referenced anywhere else. But nevertheless, it was there, so I'm counting it. I'm going to take it. This makes it official in my mind, too. Exactly so. So this is pretty trippy, Uh, and it's described thus. A checkered field of pink, yellow, orange and lime green squares. Of course. Why not? Yeah, the orange squares are cut in half by a pink downward diagonal with three black symbols for the sign of cancer, which you may know, it looks a little bit like the number 69. Mm. And that represents the three continents it passes through, Asia, Africa and North America. But yeah, a little bit of an unusual flag. More lime green than you see in most, and orange and pink. I feel like I want a pair of like surfer shorts made of that flag. It very much would look good on a surfer short, for sure. Mm. Now, national animal, again, there's no official animal, but I think you can make a case for the humpback whale, which can be found in various waters all around the belt of the tropic. They typically migrate up to 16,000 kilometres, 9,900 miles every Mm -hmm. year, and they can weigh up to 40 tonnes. And they're great singers. They can sing songs up to 30 minutes long or 3.2 times a stairway to heaven. Is that them talking? Like, is that them ranting? I think, or yeah. is that an and actual thing. song? <laughs> oh, he's so off again. Whale version of a filibuster. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's what I'm declaring the national animal of the Tropic of Cancer. I thought for sure you were going to say the crab. Well, it's a good idea, but I didn't think it was fair. So I thought uh, I'd wanted something that you could find everywhere that everyone could relate to. But uh, I like the way you're thinking. You didn't think of it, did you? now geographically obviously it's quite diverse but in general it is called a tropic for a reason it's hot so the climate of the tropic cancer is generally hot and dry there are some coastal areas that are a bit wetter there's some cool highland regions in china but hot is the main event Uh, and just to emphasize this yeah as i said before the line does go through the sahara desert to really bring home the it's hot theme wow okay cool sounds like a holiday destination place uh certainly bits of it are with the bahamas it certainly would be one of my chosen (laughs) locations now Tropic of Cancer facts, Ryan. Of course there are. Did you know the Fédération Aéronautique Internationale used the Tropic of Cancer as a shorthand for the whole world? So if if you wanted to do a flight that was competing for a round-the-world speed record, you have to cover a distance no less than the length of the Tropic of Cancer. You must also cross all meridians and end on the same airfield where you started, in case you were thinking of uh, tackling an aviation record, Ryan. I know what you're like. Yeah, in my seaplane. Has anyone ever done a round-the-world in a seaplane? I think you should definitely be the one to do it. I can see you now in one of those fancy leather jackets. Come on, chaps! (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately for Ryan, Michael Smith of Melbourne, Australia, holds the record as the first person to circumnavigate the world in a tiny two-seater single-engine amphibious plane. The trip took place over 210 days in 2015, during which time Mr. Smith spent 480 hours in the air, consumed 9,700 litres of fuel and landed at 80 cities either on airstrips or on the water, including New York City's Hudson River. Thank you. 
And also, in geopolitics, Ryan, the Tropic of Cancer is the southernmost line covered by the Mutual Defence Treaty of NATO. Huh. So if you're under threat south of the Tropic of Cancer and you're a member of NATO, too bad, they don't care. Really? Why is that then? I don't know. I guess it's part of being the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, I guess. so. Uh, I just assumed the equator would be your north-south divide. They've uh, picked differently in this case. Oh, it's got to suck if you're just south of Tropic of Cancer, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. There were masses of troops just nudging <laughs> south. Oh, come on. <laughs> okay, famous tropics of cancer. Yeah. The first famous tropic of cancer is a novel of the same name by American author Henry Miller, which you may have heard of. I have heard of Henry Miller. Yeah, he makes the beer. Uh, he doesn't make the beer, but uh, I like the way <laughs> I like where you're coming from. He was an author who published his book in 1934 in Paris, but the book was banned in the United States. What? Yes. It's a semi-autobiographical tale relating the life of a struggling writer in Paris. Right. It includes explicit scenes of sex and sexuality and what's it called again <laughs> uh the us wasn't keen on this one person went to jail for three years for importing and selling the book in america Ooh, three years three years that feels strong doesn't it for book selling yeah uh, it eventually got legally published in america in 1961 as soon as that happened a bunch of lawsuits were brought against it for obscenity this resulted in the pennsylvania supreme court justice michael musmano writing that the book is quote not a book. It is a cesspool, an open sewer, a pit of putrefaction, a slimy gathering of all that is rotten in the debris of human depravity. Wow, someone was using their thesaurus. Yeah, so obviously I looked up a copy. <laughs> Had a bit of a read for science, Ryan. Of course. And I must say, it is pretty spicy stuff. Any quotes? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, everyone at home. Sorry, not sorry. Peter is a tease. <laughs> the Musmano was a judge in a state court, and in 1964, the US Supreme Court overruled and said the book's not obscene and it was made available to an audience of literary aficionados and perverts in the United States. <laughs> perverts <laughs> now it wasn't just america clutching its pearls either the book was banned for a period in canada australia and finland and it wasn't too kindly looked on in the uk either that surprises me with finland i thought the uh, scandinavian countries were pretty chill when it comes to the more explicit side of nature yeah i thought so they kind of stand out don't they uh, hmm. of course today you can buy it in all good bookshops and you can find the text on the internet imagine that ryan rude things on the internet yeah where, where, whereabouts you got any links or anything anywhere i could i do have a link <laughs> 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 all right Which we'll slip that in the we'll show notes put the, sh the link in the show notes people so there you go ryan welcome to the tropic of cancer uh, well, I'm, it's a pleasure to be here <laughs> i'm actually drinking a fruit punch peter oh quite right too on theme i brought it for the episode good man it's very sweet <laughs> you'll need it for the sun and sweating you're gonna do i feel my teeth are melting <laughs> Hey, Ryan. Hey, Pete. Have you seen my... Oh, my God. Why are you naked? Well, clearly I'm drawing lines on my body. Why are you doing that? Well, latitude and longitude, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. I've got a doctor's appointment later, so I thought I'd make it easier for them. How's that easier? Well, once I've got longitude and latitude on my body, I don't have to be like, ouch, my leg hurts. I can just say, ouch, my 27 degree north, 59 degrees west hurts. And that helps how? Well, they follow the lines I've drawn on my body and they find the exact spot. And you can't just point at it. It has other uses too. Let's 
say I'm going to buy a new suit. Right. Well, I can say I want the sleeves down to my 15 degrees east, 41 degrees south. I see. And it'll really help with my boxing training too. You don't do boxing? No, but I could. And if I did, my trainer can tell me to give him an uppercut to the 78 degrees north and I'd know exactly where to punch. Ryan, this is stupid. It's not a better system. It's complicated and confusing. And please, can you put some clothes on? Because I can clearly see your prime meridian. Really? I can't see over the equator. Okay, Peter, I do need to know the history of the Tropic of Cancer, which I don't even know. Do we buckle up for a three-hour, 16-country history? We do not. We leap gaily on and go straight to a rock and a hard place. (laughs) Do we really? We really do. There's no history. I just, what am I going to do, man? Oh, okay. All right. Sketch then. Let's do a sketch. (laughs) All right. Sketch it up. The Tropic of Cancer is a very funny place It goes above the middle of our planet's lovely face It covers 16 countries, there's sea on all the rest But what about its history? Well, we were forced to guess So, the first dude to step on there was most likely early man He lived in huts and made some tools and hunted with his clan He then died out or was pushed out by other warring tribes Leaving shards of pottery for archaeologists to find So then who's next is bound to be those plucky Portuguese Cause they always seem to like to set up thriving colonies They sail their ships and plant a flag lay claim to everywhere Which is pretty damn annoying for the folk already there Then on to World War II and everybody takes a side And once the fighting's finished all the leaders then decide That war is bad and people won't be fighting anymore So instead of hot they then begin a new and colder war Independence movements rise and start up all over the place And governments of colonies are gone without a trace It's fun and freedom for a while then happy turns to sad Cause it turns out that the new lot at the top are just as bad But time moves on and nations change and sometimes they can show That economies get better and democracy can grow Here's hoping for a future that is prosperous and strong And that is all the history we made up for this song So the Tropic of Cancer is a very funny place And it goes above the middle of our planet's lovely face It covers 16 countries, there's sea on all the rest And that was made up history, we hope it did impress Pete, well, there you go. What fascinating history that was. Why don't you tell us now about between a rock and a hard place? I will tell you about it. It's an expression meaning to be stuck between two choices or options, neither of which is very nice. Now, there are various versions of the origin of this. A lot of people say it starts with Homer's Odyssey, where the hero Odysseus must pass between Charybdis, a treacherous whirlpool, and Scylla, a cliff-dwelling monster. So he has no choice. He has to pick one of them, and both are equally bad. Well, in this case, it's a bit weird, because 
I don't know why they say that, because actually Odysseus has to just navigate his way through and he doesn't actually have to choose one or the other because he's got to find it's a tricky needle to thread, if you will. Oh, so there's a way through it. You just have to be careful. You don't get smashed either side. Well, it's used in both ways, actually. If you're between a rock and a hard place, it sometimes means I'd have to pick one of these two bad things. And sometimes Mm. it means I've got a very delicate navigation job to do. And that's partly why other sites say it originates in America at the start of the 20th century, which some one of which claimed it was a, a mining phrase where the rock was tough work in the mine and the hard place was unemployment and penury. Oh, right. Okay. For me, though, I, I think all this feels like kind of retro explanation. I don't think it needs that much explanation because it's a phrase that accurately conveys a fairly standard human experience. To be stuck with two bad ideas or two bad options is something that everyone is familiar with. And there are consequently a bunch of different ways of saying it. People say between the devil and the deep blue sea. Mm. Russians say between the hammer and the anvil. Even recently, Sophie's choice people might talk about having to make a choice that's hard. Yeah. Uh, or you might be on the horns of a dilemma. So I just think it's a reasonably articulate way of explaining what is a fairly common human experience. And I don't think it was really invented by anybody. It's a pretty common phrase, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. But I, Ryan, am stuck between a rock and a hard place. I have to choose between featuring just one country that's found on the Tropic of Cancer and thus get a low grade from Judge Dursley for not covering the area properly. (laughs) Yeah. Or I can try and cover all of the Tropic of Cancer and get a low grade from Judge Dursley for skimming the surface and not being in-depth enough. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like every episode though to be fair (laughs) true sounds like the dilemma we always face but i'm going to solve it ryan because in this episode i'm going to try and encapsulate the place and topic by getting from a rock to a hard place traveling as far as i can along the tropic of cancer using methods and people found in our time period the ninth century that sounds hard yes but i did it (laughs) (laughs) or did i you be the judge (laughs) find out after this (laughs) God damn it. Okay, I'm on it, Mr. Mayor. Rock, hard place, get in here. You wanted to see us, Chief? I wanted to see you, see you do some goddamn police work for once. Chief, we've been hitting the streets. That's right, real hard. What's this about you two stirring up trouble at the docks? We got a tip, Chief. A shipment of drugs came in. But we searched the joint. And we hit the mother load. What the hell is wrong with you two? Without a warrant, it'd be thrown out of cart. I ought to take your badges. So what, we let the drugs hit the street? Or stop the powder, but the perps walk free? We have to do something, Chief. We can't let them get away with it. Rock, hard place, you got me on the horns of a dilemma. If I let you go rogue, I'll get hell from the DA. But if I don't, people are gonna die. What's it to be, Chief? Yeah, what are you gonna do? God damn it. Why can't you two be more like detectives, marshmallow, and simple solution? Okay, Pete, where do we start? Well, Ryan, I'm going to start us in the ninth century, as I said, and we're going to travel as far as we can across the Tropic of Cancer. And we're going between a rock and a hard place. And I'm going to start us on the west coast of Africa as a reasonably decent starting point where you find the country today of Mauritania. (gasps) 
We know that one. We've been there. We have. But of course, in the ninth century, borders are nothing like they are now. But Mm. what you do have is one of the more dominant empires in West Africa of the time, the Empire of Ghana. Oh, really? The Ghana Empire was quite a substantial empire in West Africa. Slightly confusingly, it is not actually where Ghana is today. (laughs) Oh, Lord. If you take Ghana today, it's actually northwest of modern Ghana. But if you think about the bulge of Africa, the top left of Africa kind of bulges out. Yep. Kind of in the middle of that, just south of the Sahara, you've got an area where you've got Mali, Senegal, Mauritania, that kind of area. If you stab a blob on that, you'll get the Empire of Ghana in 800 to 900 CE. Okay. It actually starts a little bit before that. Around 300 CE, the various tribes of the Saninki people come together and over generations they grow this empire of Ghana. Hmm. Uh, I know it sounds Sounds sneaky, don't they? Here come the Saninki. The Saninki people. (laughs) (laughs) Now, three things really help them grow. And the first two are pretty obvious, but the third one is perhaps slightly surprising. The first is trade, obviously. So somewhere around 200 to 300 CE, you see the camel starting to be found in the Sahara, specifically crossing the Sahara in initiating a trade between North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. So this is the time where you start between 200 going all the way up to 900. You start to see these caravan trains of Arabic merchants coming across the Sahara into the Western African areas. Spices and dates, I'm guessing. Possibly going one way, but no, what they're after is something more obvious, I think it's fair to say. Now, if you made your journey from North Africa through the Sahara, the first place you come to is the Empire of Ghana. And that made them really well-placed to be the middlemen for trans-Saharan trade. And that was part of the reason this empire became big and powerful and wealthy. Okay. But as well as trading, the Ghanaian empire was blessed with another pretty handy resource, gold. People love the gold. Now, we, we know about this empire and this trade and the gold largely from the writings of the Arab scholars who either engaged in or were aware of this cross-Saharan trade. So most of this comes from Arabic sources. One of these was a guy called Al-Yakubi. He was an Islamic scholar who died around 897 nicely in our time period. And he wrote a book known as Al-Tariq, or History. Makes sense. Have you got a history book? Yes. History. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He wrote, There is the kingdom of Ghana, the king of which is very powerful. In his country there are gold mines. Under his authority there are other kingdoms such as Am and Sama, and gold is found in all these regions. Nice. Good for them. Yeah. There's another Arab traveller who writes of the Ghana Empire in the 9th century, uh, a man known as Al-Masudi, and we'll meet him again later, actually. Cool. And he said, The kingdom of Ghana is one of great importance, and it adjoins the land of the gold mines. Great peoples of the Sudan live there. Sudan meaning just black people, really, rather than being the nation state that we think of today. They have traced a boundary that no one who sets out to them ever crosses. Oh, why? Are they dangerous? Well, I don't know exactly why, but he does describe how these people who can't cross a line manage to go about their trade. And he says this, When the merchants reach this boundary, they place their wares and cloth on it, then depart. So the people of the Sudan come bearing gold, which they leave beside the merchandise, and then depart. This is all very trusting. It's it's an interesting system, isn't it? The owners of the merchandise then return, and if they are satisfied with what they have found, they take it. If not, they go away again until the people of the Sudan return and add to the price until the bargain is concluded. So this is like perfect for business introverts. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a, yeah, an introvert invented it, then they developed it slightly. So at the edge of the rug, there was someone going, unexpected item in packing area. (laughs) 
Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's a bit of a palaver. I, th- I think I prefer online shopping, if I'm honest. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's much easier, isn't it? I guess it works. But anyway, Al Masudi went on to describe the wealth of the area, saying, Under the supreme leader of the King of Ghana, there are a number of lesser rulers, and in all their kingdoms, gold is visible on the ground, and the people extract it and set it like curds. Yeah, I don't believe any of this. Anywhere that's wealthy and has some gold ended up being described as paved with gold and it's lying about everywhere. But yes, I I think I agree with you. They said that London was paved with gold. That was a lie. That was wildly inaccurate. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I know Dursley's going to tell me that gold is a metal and not a rock. So I need to find us a rock to get us started on our journey, Ryan. Yep. Okay. So fortunately for me, another major commodity traded in the area was salt. Ooh. Now, salt, as you probably know is essential for life you'd use it to preserve food you put it on your chips but it wasn't in great supply in west africa where the heat meant it's even more important because you're sweating and you're losing minerals yeah yeah people love salt yeah and if you live on the coast it's okay you can get salt by evaporating seawater to create sea salt yep makes sense but sea salt doesn't travel very well ryan really why not uh it absorbs moisture Oh, that makes sense. So what do you got to do? Lick a camel or something and get the salt off of the back of that? Well, the, another thing you can do is derive it from veg, sometimes known as vegetable salts. You burn plant matter, such as millet, and you can filter the ash and you, from the water that you get, you can then evaporate and derive salts known as salt ash or pot ash. So you can get salt from vegetable matter if you're uh, having a hard day. That sounds hard. Yeah, that's a lot of hassle. And what do you got? Ashy salt. Doesn't sound great, does it? <laughs> But better than both of these is rock salt, also known as halite. Now, you get this where there's something like a dried out lake bed or an ocean floor. The salt evaporates from the water and it becomes a kind of crusty layer in the ground. This gets overlaid by further sediments, deposit on it, gets compressed and it gets hard and dense until it becomes basically a rock, rock salt. Okay. Now, rock salt is brilliant because it doesn't absorb the water like sea salt, so it keeps a lot better. You dig it out of the ground and you can shape it into nice little slabs, ideal for easy transportation. Yeah, I guess so. You just chisel away at it, right? Exactly. Chisel yourself a nice handy block of salt and off you go. So although your mind leaps to gold when we think of the Trans-Saharan trade, it's actually known as the golden salt route. And the prosperity of the Ghana Empire was obviously partly based on gold, but not insignificantly part on, based on rock salt as well. Good for them. Yeah. In particular, there were salt mines in Ijil in the Sahara, and they were a famous source of salt for the empire. This is located in Mauritania. That's our westernmost country in Africa. It's on the Tropic of Cancer. So there, first rock, starting place, Mauritania. Rock salt is the rock. All right. We are starting to be between a rock and a hard place. I'm guessing the people digging it out of the rock mines probably weren't well looked after, were they? I'm going to guess there were some hard, hard yards to be worked and those salt mines. And you're probably very thirsty and it's like the worst place to work if you're thirsty. <laughs> yeah, licking your fingers and go, oh no, <laughs> I've made it yeah. worse. <laughs> And then he said, that's not salt. But I said, oh, I bet you it is. And you know what? It was salt. So you found some salt. We did. In the salt mine. Yes. Listen, darling, I think it's great that you love your job. I do. I mean, I think you're probably the only slave in the salt mine who does. And I do love that about you. I barely have to whip me at all. I know. And that's lovely. But you're not at work now. So do you really have to talk about salt all the time? But salt's so fascinating. The different crystals the thrill of the dig. There's just so much to talk about. Oh yes, I'm very much aware of how much there is to talk about, but can we talk about anything else? Uh, A trip to the seaside, perhaps? Oh yes, I'd love a trip to the seaside. We could go down to the beach, paddle out into the sea. Exactly, yes. Scoop up some buckets of seawater. Right. And evaporate it into sea salt. I've heard it's so different from the rock salt at work. Oh, you're talking about salt again, darling. Am I? 
Oh, oh, sorry. Look, how's the garden? Um, how are the cabbages coming in? Oh, marvellous. It's so relaxing just being out in nature. And uh, funnily enough, when I was digging out the plot, I was hacking at the ground and uh, you'll never guess what turned up. Was it a chunk of salt? It was. That's it. I swear, Adjim, if you mention salt one more time, God help me. I'd rather eat dinner in silence than talk about salt for one more second. Oh, oh, oh. Well, fine. Darling. Yes, darling. Could you pass the... Pass the what? Go on, say it. I dare you. Pepper? Alright, Peter, where next after Mauritania? Well, we've got our starting point. We're going to start our travels along the Tropic of Cancer. We've met our first traveller, actually, the Arab geographer, historian and travel blogger named Al-Masoudi. Al-Masoudi. So he was one of those guys I mentioned who told tales of the gold trader of Ghana. Uh, and we're going to start our journey by meeting him in Ghana, although his own journey started in what is now Iraq. Al-Masoudi was born in Baghdad about 896 CE. Yeah, okay. He travelled quite far, didn't he, for that time period? He was another one of these travelling Arabs who got a very, very long way, actually. He's said to have been a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad's friend Abdullah ibn Masood. His Wikipedia has him down as a historian, geographer and traveller, which would look great on a business card. Yeah, amazing. Uh, he wrote a number of books. I've uh, read up to 35, but I've, reports vary. And the most famous of these is a book called Meadows of Gold. This is a mix of history, comparative anthropology and a travel guide. And one of the things that makes Al-Masudi quite notable in this book is he's actually interested in cultures and countries outside of Islam. It's not just an Islamic history like the Ghanaians. He's saying, oh, these are other cultures and people who do things differently. He should have called that book cultures we probably did i don't know what the oh no meadows of gold was the translation wasn't it yeah also known as culture <laughs> rough, rough, rough guide to the world <laughs> uh now to write all of his books about all the places he did use other sources but he did also travel extensively he's believed to have personally visited syria iran armenia the indus valley india sri lanka Oman and the east coast of Africa. Yeah, that's quite the trek, isn't it? He was seriously committed and he writes of the importance of personal experience in his book. He says, quote, the information we have gathered here is the fruit of long years of research and painful efforts of our voyages and journeys across the east and west and of the various nations that lie beyond the region of Islam. What, a, what an age where it was all a bit of a mystery. Quite the adventure, wasn't it? He then adds, actually, a, quite a beautiful thing. He says, The author of this work compares himself to a man who, having found pearls of all kinds and colours, gathers them together into a necklace and makes them into an ornament that its possessor guards with great care. That's wonderful. How beautiful. It's very poetic. Yeah, and I can't quite tell if he's being boastful because he's made this beautiful thing or modest because he says, well, I'll just put things together that I found. Yeah, that's, that's what I figure, yeah. Okay. Let's give him benefit of the doubt. All right, we will do it. So, Al Masoudi, you're a good man on our on our account. Uh, so he didn't go to West Africa, he said himself, I don't think. I think he made it to East Africa, but we do mention he writes about West Africa and he's very clear that it's possible to travel from West Africa on the gold salt trade routes to get to the Persian Gulf. We've talked about this before, haven't we, with a lot of those Arabic travellers that rock up in coffee shops or whatever are just like, oh, where have you been? And they just write down what that other yeah. person told them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. So he's our first traveller, Al Masoudi. He gets us from Mauritania all the way to the Persian Gulf. He himself goes to India, but I'm going to hand him over a bit like a relay. Because in the introduction to one of the translations of Meadows of Gold, the author 
sources claim that al-Masudi met another traveller and historian who was a man called Abu Zaid al-Sirafi. Who's he? Well, he is a traveller, historian and geographer, much like al-Masudi, but he goes a little bit further, so I'm doing a little bit of a relay to get us as far as we can. Again, not a great deal is known about him, his mysterious beginnings. He's believed to be connected to the port of Siraf, which is an Iranian port, and that was part of a trade route to India, which gave him the opportunity to travel. So he writes the second half of a book called Accounts of India and China, which is a book of traveller's tales. It's not a very long book, and it doesn't really have a narrative structure. It doesn't really tell a story. It's a pretty random set of tales and observations about both India and China and a bunch of other locations as well. But the goal here, Ryan, is to travel as far as we can along the Tropic of Cancer. And China is about as far east as we're going to get on this journey. Okay. So we're going to learn a bit about what Al Sarafi has to say about China at this time. Would you like to learn about promiscuous women, Ryan? Hmm. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Al Sarafi says, and I don't know if this is true, but that's what he says. I've heard. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Is that what he says? (laughs) (laughs) And I quote. Among the Chinese, there are certain women who do not wish to be virtuously married, but prefer a life of sexual promiscuity. The practice is for such a woman to go to the office of the chief of police and declare her renunciation of the married life and that she wishes to be entered into the list of harlots. (laughs) Wow. Get out the book of harlots. We've got another one. (laughs) I want to join the list of harlots. Yes. So apparently then she gets given a necklace with a copper tag by way of identification and she pays a yearly sum for what I can only describe as her harlots license. (laughs) This is amazing. Well, apparently this deal is pretty serious because the penalty for marrying one of these women is death wow okay so once they're registered you you can't be marrying them that's it once properly licensed with up-to-date paperwork the women then according to al Sarafi, quote go to wanton and licentious foreigners who Mm. have arrived in the land and also to the chinese themselves spending the night with them and leaving the following morning (laughs) what do you reckon they do that night scrabble yeah probably (laughs) yutzy so (laughs) you sunk my battleship (laughs) never heard it called that before oh dear now having piqued our interest he's told this story of these wanton women and then he just suddenly jumps topics out of the blue in this case he goes straight on to the next section entitled chinese copper coinage (laughs) (laughs) this whole book's full of this jumping from topic to topic of like oh and i heard this about china uh some of the sections are more self-serving than others the one i particularly enjoyed was crops warriors and the awe in which arabs are held oh really okay (laughs) but mostly it's just this weird set of interested and interesting observations so i can tell you about the subject of eunuch slaves if you like They function as overseers of taxes and as doorkeepers of the treasury. Some of them are of non-Chinese origin, captured in the borderlands, then castrated. Others come from the native Chinese population and are castrated by their fathers, then presented by them to the ruler as a means of gaining favour. Oh, my God. So castration in those days, are we talking just the testicular parts? Or are we talking so. about the entire area? I think we're just talking testicles. Wait, so your dad does it? Yeah, that was the hard part. I was like, you captured in war and you get done, you know, not great, but understandable. But dad, where are we going, dad? Yeah. You'll find out. That's grim, huh? Oof. <laughs> well, that's made me feel very uncomfortable. Okay, I'll move you on to another one that's even more horrifying in some ways. Great. How about a list short and sweet tale, Ryan? Quote, All the kings of India and China believe in the transmigration of souls and hold it as an article of faith. A trustworthy informant reported that one of the kings in these lands was afflicted by smallpox. When he had recovered, he looked in the mirror and thought how hideous his face had become. 
Seeing one of his brother's sons, he said to him, It's not for the like of me to dwell in this body now it is so changed. The body is, after all, a mere receptacle for the soul. When the soul passes out of it, it returns in another receptacle. You must be king in my place, for I shall now disjoin my soul from my body until such time as I alight in another's body. He then called for a dagger of his that had a particularly sharp edge and commanded that his head be severed with it. He was duly decapitated, then his corpse was burned. The end. (laughs) Did he come back in yeah. another body? Well, uh, didn't doesn't he's moved on to coinage now? I don't know. <laughs> wow. I mean, it's a gamble. It is a gamble. He seems pretty certain. So maybe he knows something. Yeah. Maybe it's worth giving a go. Uh, well, you first. <laughs> Can I ask you in the Chinese manner of urination, Ryan? Is this eunuchs? Because I'm kind of fascinated about how eunuchs do it. Well, eunuchs are only missing the potatoes. Still- <laughs> that, was my, that was my question. We don't know. Uh, no, I, this is the urination of the rulers and the high-ranking people, actually. Okay, tell me about how they urinated. <laughs> they urinate. I'm glad you asked that. They, quote, they urinate from a standing position. What? The rulers themselves, army commanders and other people of high rank use tubes of lacquered wood, each a mm. cubit in length with a hole at either end, the upper one big enough for the user to insert the head of his penis. When he wants to <laughs> urinate, he stands on his feet, aims the tube away from himself and urinates through it. They maintain that this method is healthier for their bodies. Yeah, it's just because they're young. They haven't reached a certain age where it's just much better to sit down. There is that. But I'm slightly wondering if perhaps I could benefit from a tube, you know, by the bedside. Well, just pop it out the one end out of the window. Uh, whilst we're on toilet matters, he can be quite critical. He says, quote, the Chinese are unhygienic and they do not wash their backsides with water after defecating, but merely wipe themselves with Chinese paper. Oh, Chinese paper. Chinese paper. I don't know. Oh, imagine doing that using paper. Disgusting. Gross. But a major thing that Al Serafi starts his half of the book with is about how China has changed, especially relating to trade. As you can imagine, he was in part a trader himself. He says, Hmm. quote, the situation has changed in China in particular. Particular. The reason for the deterioration of law and order in China and for the end of the China trading voyages from Siraf was an uprising led by a rebel from outside the ruling dynasty known as Huang Chao. At the outset of his career, he had been involved in armed banditry and hooliganism, causing general mayhem and attracting a rabble of witless followers. So apparently these guys' warriors go on a bit of a rampage, destroying towns, and of a particular interest to our trader, quote, Huang Chao also cut down all the trees in Kamfu, including all the mulberry trees. We single out mulberry trees for mention because the Chinese use their leaves as fodder for silkworms. Owing to the destruction of the trees, the silkworms perished, and this in turn caused silk, in particular, to disappear from Arab lands. Oh, interesting. That's quite fascinating, isn't it? That's good, isn't it? So you can see he's really interested in the, the impact that events happen in China and suddenly there's no silk to be had in, in Araby. In Araby? In Araby. <laughs> <laughs> he goes on to say, Huang Chong marched on one city after another, laying waste to each. So this guy was romping around, messing China up, something terrible. He must have been pretty good at it, though. Well, we're going to find out, Ryan, because Al Sirafi has brought us all the way to China, also on the Tropic of Cancer, as we know, and he's introduced us to an interesting character who appears to have rebelled against the government who were making China a hard place for the people to live. Why did you say it like that? (laughs) What if I missed? A hard place. (laughs) I don't get it. But who was Huang oh, Chao? Oh, wait a minute. I get it. <laughs> God, I'm slow. But who was Huang Chao? Was he real or a flight of this traveller's fancy? Let's find out after this. Hard place, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hello, how can I help? Hello, yes, I'd like to be a harlot, please. A harlot, okay. And do you have the paperwork? I do, I do. Here. Excellent. Now, were you thinking full or part-time promiscuity? Oh, full-time. Oh, zero sexual restraint? That's absolutely right. Okay, so I just need to check. In terms of intended behaviour, you will be required to be unscrupulous with a total disregard for ethics. Is that okay? Oh, yes, that's fine. Great. And do you have any experience of lewdness and promiscuity? Oh, do I need any? Well, yes, it does help with the application. Right, right. Okay, well, I did have an affair with my neighbour's husband. Uh, so Well, more emotional, to be honest. Right, well, I'll just put physical. I think it'll just help grease the wheels. Oh, okay, thank you. And on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being angelic soul and 10 being devil witch, where do you see yourself with regards to virtue? Ooh, probably a 7? Right, so a horny housewife. Ooh, no, better make it an 8. Rampant man-eater. Ah, yes, that's the one. Okay, great. Um, Any sexual disease? Not currently, but I am open to the idea. All right, and... And okay, well, I just need you to sign the harlot declaration here. Right, okay. I promise to be dirty, sinful, deceitful, filthy, yeah, yeah. Okay. And initial here. Here you go. Okay, well, I'm going to get that processed, and you should receive your licence within the next ten working days. Great, so I can start harloting today, or...? Oh, uh, not officially, no. You're going to need to wait for the licence, really. Oh, it's just I'm so excited to get started. I'm sure a little light harloting is fine. Just keep it off the streets, okay? Great. And I wonder, can I interest you in any... uh... Oh, uh, gosh. (laughs) Right, well, um, sure. Uh, I have a break at two o'clock. Oh, right, that's great. I'll pop back then, then. Shall I bring some sandwiches? Ooh, that's a little wifey. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm still new to all of this. us on the journey pete where are we going next well we're continuing to find out what was going on in china so we read in al Sarafi's book about this rebel running riot in china in the ninth century but what's the real story here so in 835 ce bang our time period during the tang dynasty this was in china there was a man called huang chow born he was well educated but he failed his civil service exams right what idiot in fact this is i like quoting from wikipedia sometimes because it makes me smile it was said that huang was capable in swordsmanship riding and archery and was somewhat capable in writing and rhetoric which reads like the end of term report guard at a pirate college doesn't it (laughs) (laughs) yeah anyway having failed his exams huang had to find another way to make his living now fortunately for the symmetry of this episode he became a salt smuggler oh really a smuggler a smuggler of salt salt was a government monopoly and was very expensive in fact monopolizing salt was one of the ways that the government was making life really difficult for the people lots of heavy taxes lots of oppression and you could easily say ryan and i'm gonna say it that the elites were making china a hard place At the same time, the emperor himself was living a life of luxury and opulence. He was having a lovely time. So it's not going to surprise you that rebellion starts to break out. A rebellion over salt? No, about all of the general oppression. So you're being oppressed, you're paying a load of taxes, you're working a hard life and you see the emperor munching on his grapes and having a lovely old time. Yeah, all right. Fair enough. So one of the rebellions started in 874. This is one that Huang joined. Uh, It started out okay, but ended up with the rebel forces being divided, half of them going off to do their own thing, uh, and the other half staying under the leadership of Huang Chao. Okay. So this is the guy described by Al-Sarafi, and he does indeed go on something of a rampage. 
He gets his forces and he pushes them south. In 879, they take the rich trade city of Guangzhou. Then he moves into the Lingnan region, where he doesn't do quite so well, but it's not really his fault. He loses about 40% of his forces to illness. Uh, So anyway, the enemy starts to close in. So it gets a bit desperate. Huang decides to try and bribe his way out of the problem. He sends one of the enemy leaders, a guy called Zhang, a bunch of gold. And he writes letters to Zhang's boss, a guy called Gao, offering to give up if they'll give him a good deal. Yep, sensible. So Gao senses his enemy is weak. So he decides not only is he about to beat Huang, but he wants to get all the credit. So he had been sent some additional troops to help with this battle. Uh, he just sends them home. So he thinks this guy's desperate. I'm going to I'm going to win this. He was quite wrong. Huang then breaks off the negotiations, sends his troop to do battle with Zhang, and he beats him decisively. He beat him decisively. He did. And Zhang was not only defeated, he was killed in the battle. Okay, so Huang goes on to attack and capture the Tang capital of Chang'an, partly with the help of some of the Tang dynasty soldiers who were then fed up because they keep seeing new soldiers arrive and the new soldiers all have better stuff than they had. (laughs) (laughs) So they eventually come across Huang. So they go, oh, actually, where do you want to go? We'll help guide you. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, now in 881, Huang Chao has taken the capital and he declares himself the Emperor of Qi and he asks the Tang generals to recognise him. Quite right too. Yeah, unfortunately they do not. Uh, in 883, the Tang forces, assisted by a group of nomadic Turkish tribes, drive Huang out of the capital. What are the Turkish tribes doing there? Just roaming around, uh, signing up for war when uh, anyone's going to pay them, I think. Uh, it gets a bit worse. Imperial troops catch up with Huang when he's crossing the Yellow River and they inflict a heavy defeat on his forces. Now there are enemies all around and he's stuck between a rock and a hard place, you might say. There were more battles and more losses. Eventually, in July 884 CE, Huang and his family were killed. Some say Huang committed suicide or others say that he was captured and killed. But in any event, it brought the Huang rebellion to a final end. Maybe he was just trying to reincarnate himself. Oh, that's a good plan. As an emperor, it's quicker and easier. (laughs) He'd heard the story and thought, well, this is a quick way out. (laughs) Well, in fact, although his rebellion was ultimately a failure, the Tang dynasty itself was on its last legs and had really been exposed in part by this rebellion. A lot of people see it as the beginning of the end of the Tang Empire. In 907, the Tang dynasty was brought to an end by Zhu Wen, who was himself one of the generals who'd taken part in the rebellion and fought under Huang Zhao. Okay. So what of his legacy, Ryan? Was he a hero or a villain of history? I'm going to say he was neither. Well, Chiang Kai-shek called him one of the two most notorious brigands in Chinese history. Brigand, no less. Yeah. But the Communist Party of China called him an early champion of the rights of the masses. Yeah, you see, that's what I'm saying. I think somewhere in the middle. You absolutely nailed it. But now what is clear, though, is that the hardship of a failing dynasty and the disruption of a decade of violent rebellion, China at the end of the ninth century was a difficult, you might even say, hard place. And so, Ryan, that is our journey from a rock in the form of a salt dug out of the ground in slabs in Mauritania, across the Sahara Desert, heading east to the ports of Saudi Arabia and Oman until we reach the coast of of India and on to the far east of China where we find a land in uproar and turmoil. In other words, we've travelled between a rock and a hard place along the Tropic of Cancer in the 9th century. Yeah, that's actually all right. I, can't, I, I like it when you wrap it up because then I'm like, yeah, actually that does make sense. <laughs> no, nice one, man. I mean, how difficult is that though? My goodness, you, uh, you, so many countries all the way around the world. I think you took a really neat little turn there and we got to meet some cool people from the time. Eunuchs and harlots. Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> well, I loved it. Thank you very much, Pete. Thank you, Ryan. You want to buy some salt? I beg your pardon? Salt. Do you want to buy some salt? 
Oh, well, is it kosher? Of course it's not kosher. I'm a salt smuggler. Oh, really? Yeah, I smuggle salt. I've got everything. Himalayan, sea, rock, garlic, road. Well, how do you smuggle salt? Well, you know those tiny sachets you get? Of course. Well, do you know how many of those you can hide about your person? No. A lot of sachets can be hid about one's person, inside and out. Oh, right. Well, I'm afraid I'm all right for salt. Thanks, anyway. What about batteries? What, you smuggle those too? Nothing bigger than a double A. Huntao, you are under arrest. What are the charges? Assault and battery. All right, Peter. Another rampant ride through the HHE Wheel of Destiny, all the way from Mauritania to China. Yeah, I have to apologise to Mexico. I couldn't get us across to that uh, Central American link. (laughs) (laughs) But enough journeying across the Tropic of Cancer, Peter, because it is time to wheel out the Dursalator of Fortune and see what I will be dealing with in our next episode. All right, here we go. Press the button. All right, Ryan, are you ready for your country? I certainly am, sir. Your country is... Guadeloupe. Okay. okay. I honestly don't even know where that is. So, all right. I'm just going to say, good. I know the name. That's something, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Your time period, sir. Yeah, what's my time? The time is... 2010 to 2015. Oh, that's good. That's super good. That means there's stuff written. Newspapers come into play. (laughs) The internet. Oh, that'd be great. And your topic is... Carte Blanche. Carte Blanche. Okay. So it is Carte Blanche in Guadeloupe during 2010 to 2015. That's it. That sounds okay. Go get them, Ryan. All right. I'm going to nail this one. Just you wait. See? I'm excited. Bring it on! Okay, well, Peter, there we are. That is the show for this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that Pete has talked about on this show, or just to say hello, you can definitely do that. You can reach out to us through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at peteandryan at hhepodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. That's right, and if you're on Mastodon, Instagram, Facebook, or X, you can find us at hhepodcast. Yeah, if you subscribe to those, you'll get alert when we post extra content like the facts we didn't use photos pictures of the flag all that kind of thing yep and we are going to be back again very soon with the verdict but until then a huge thanks to you peter thanks ryan and that is it i guess all that's left to say is you've been listening to history happened everywhere Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. Oh, really? What's up? Well, I want to go to Carol's party, but if I do that, I'm going to have to see Tom, and I still owe him money. Ooh, right. That is tricky. Yeah, I just don't know what to do. Well, what does your gut tell you? Well, mostly that I'm hungry. Maybe you could just think outside the box, then. What, the lunchbox? No, I mean, look at it from a different angle. Oh, right. You mean from this angle, I can reach the fridge. Ryan, I'm talking about your trouble. No, it's no trouble. Just open the fridge door, and there it is. Ryan, I'm trying to help you here. Oh, well, if you could make me a cheese sandwich, that'd be lovely. 
right, I'm talking about Carol and Tom. What, they want a sandwich too? Oh, this is impossible. Why? Have we run out of cheese? Ryan. Yes, Pete? You're an idiot. So who's making this sandwich then? What? (laughs) I'm just reading what's on the page, right? I'm a professional.